Oh, wait. What's going on here? Hmm. I didn't mean to do it. Yeah, so uh, so how's it going, Darby? Uh, it's uh, very rainy here in Miami, but uh, hopefully it's a little bit nicer in uh, Stewart. It's a little blustery, not raining yet. <laughs> So, Darby, if you could just, uh, you know, tell tell us a little bit about how, uh, you know, what led you to the whole like trauma informed perspective, and um, yeah, how you got into that. Um, well, my background is working with at risk youth in alternative education settings, and they all experienced some kind of trauma, um, which is why they weren't successful in regular school settings, and. During that period, I got married and divorced, and it was a very um, traumatic experience for me and my own children. So I um, started digging into that and found the adverse childhood experience research was just, you know, becoming popular in the news and um people were starting to really dig into it. So how, how did you come across it? Or did you find um, it? I Google, <laughs> I mean, I really just was searching for, you know, solutions and answers um, because that's the kind of the way that my brain works is I just research things. So I came across it. And then the more I read, the more it made sense, not only in my own personal life, but with the kids that I worked with at schools. So um, I realized that they couldn't like focus in school and concentrate and do well because they had survival instincts getting in the way of, um, you know, being able to learn and behave like teachers expect them to. So the more I dug into it, the more everything kind of seemed connected. And I um, worked on several master's degrees in education. And then I switched over to the conflict resolution field for my PhD because I really want to be able to prevent and reduce the trauma that so many kids are going through specifically related to divorce. So and um, what, uh, yeah, what's your, re- uh, what's your research uh, focused on? Um, the, my dissertation is going to be focused on family court and um, really just looking at what we can do to instill better practices in family court to reduce structural violence, to prevent and reduce trauma and ACEs, especially in high conflict custody situations where there could be domestic violence um, because the way that courts traditionally have handled these situations aren't always protecting the children or everybody involved. So I critically want to look at the current court practices and offer up some alternatives to those practices that could be more trauma informed. Okay. And what, what do you think are, are the ways in which the, uh, the courts uh, fall short to being uh, sensitive to trauma and really um, uh, empowering uh, trauma survivors to, to seek justice? 
Well, traditional court practices, um, most people go in with lawyers. Not everybody has a lawyer, which can be very scary in itself. Um, but if people aren't agreeing, like if, if say like a, a couple wants to get divorced, they can draw everything up and sign the paperwork and get divorced without ever really stepping foot in front of a judge. Um, but that's not the case when there's custody, when there's um, conflict, it's going to be a long drawn out thing. And I don't know the specific stats for this, but from people that I've talked to, custody situations aren't like, okay, you're in and it takes a year and you're done. These are open court cases that last, you know, five, 10, potentially 18 years. <laughs> um, as long as like the kid is a child and then there's other issues with finances and, um, you know, mediation, parenting coordination, there's court ordered family, family evaluations, which can, can cost five or $10,000. And sometimes there's multiple ones of those. Um, sometimes guardian ad items get involved. Child protective services can get called um, with all sorts of accusations, whether they're founded or not. And it's just a place where conflict seems to be um, increased instead of protective factors and trauma being decreased. So when people split up, they're like, okay, well now the conflict is going to be over, you know, like we're no longer living in the same house, but in the court system, it's actually perpetuated. And I think that we need to be looking at that and say, well, what can we do to make sure that this conflict isn't going to drag out another 10 years? So, so what do you think are some good alternatives other than, um, um, to, uh, to, to, to divorce other than the, the traditional kind of um, um, uh, litigious kind of uh, practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, within the system as it stands, mediation is a good thing. But if there's a power imbalance, then it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not recommended for cases of domestic violence because there's of the power imbalance. Um, but it's good for the majority of people that are getting a divorce because you get to make your own decisions. The judge is not making the decision for you. Um, there are parenting coordinators. I don't know, state by state, it's different. In Florida, you can have a parenting coordinator, which is kind of like ongoing mediation. So, if you can't agree on something, you meet on a regular basis with the parenting coordinator and you come up with solutions together and it's kind of supervised and that can be helpful, but it's helpful only if the parenting coordinator is say trauma informed or is aware of the power dynamics. Um, I know a lot of people that have had very bad experiences with parenting coordinators where they felt like they had were like forced to agree to things and forced to sign things that, that they didn't want. Um, so it really depends on the parenting coordinator. 
And, and what? I, um, how does one get in touch with a parenting coordinator? Um, usually, it's court ordered. So Do they have any uh, choice in who who is selected? Not well, not really. It <laughs> it depends on um, it depends on the judge. Judges usually have their go to people, like who they order for mediation who they order for evaluate like they usually have a certain set of people and in florida at least there's like mediators are certified and and approved just like therapists would be and um like say court ordered evaluators those are usually some kind of mental health um person that has met certain criteria to do these evaluations and parenting coordinators are usually either a mediator or a therapist and have done some kind of training, but it does depend on the judge and the district of where, you know, you're at, but families can go in and say, I looked at these people and here's a list of three that I'm willing to work with. And that can guide the process a little bit. (laughs) Um, but it's not like you're going to get the person that you want specifically. Like you never know when you go into a court, you never know because it's kind of like you're deferring to the judge. Um, you're giving your agency away, <laughs> you know? So, so those are like what's already established in court, but there's alternatives that um, are up and coming like online dispute resolution, which is used Uh widely in the business world, but not so much in say family court. Um, We are seeing some online dispute resolution in terms of like, say zoom or some other video platform, especially during the COVID crisis where people are having court online um, or mediation online instead of, everybody being physically in the courtroom together. So I'm a big advocate for um, alternatives like this, especially if there's say been, been domestic violence because it can take away some of the trauma and the physical experiences that say a woman would, would have seeing her abuser like in the same room (laughs) as her. Um, So if like say mediation or parenting coordination or something where they could be like in the, in the safety and comfort of their own homes, but on their computer or phone or device, that could be just one simple way to make something trauma informed because it's removing a, like a physical um, reaction that people could be having due to trauma. Well, and also they don't, they don't have to deal with all like uh, kind of the trauma of going through like the uh, the metal detectors right. and, and all the whole experience of going in court itself is yeah. If you're not traumatized, it's not really the most uh, friendly uh, environment to, to be in. It can definitely be <laughs> overwhelming, um, and and I don't think I mean I do know that there are organizations like the. Um, Association for Family and 
conciliatory courts. I probably said mm-hmm. that wrong. Um, that's nationwide. Florida has a chapter. They do a lot of the training for lawyers and judges and mediators. Um, they are starting to have more trauma informed trainings, but typically when lawyers and judges and they go through law school, they're not getting training on, on this, you know, like you have a psychology background, you understand it pretty well, but lawyers, they're trained to be (laughs) very, um, to battle it out, you know, (laughs) which isn't always, um, going to work well for people to come to solutions together. So, um, ODR is definitely, um, online dispute resolution is definitely something that should be increased in family court. Um, especially if it's for smaller here, like a status hearing, like I know people that have had to drive, like they live out of town. They have to drive four hours into town to attend a 15 minute hearing. And if they can't make it, you know, it's counted against them. If they could just attend online, it would make the case go so much faster. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. Um, have you ever heard of any uh, the the collaborative divorce or collaborative approach? I have. And I do know that they have um, quite a few groups in South Florida, which yeah. is exciting. I think the collaborative groups are definitely great for for families that are trying to avoid the court process altogether. Right. Um, I don't think it would necessarily work for the higher conflict cases, which yeah, they really you know, have to, both parties have to really buy into the, right. um, uh, uh, the collaborative process for it to work. Right. Um, and what I'm sort of focusing on is the higher conflict cases. And I'm, particularly interested in say, you know, having a therapeutic process, like I'm not a therapist, but I'm very familiar with (laughs) the therapeutic process. And there's, you know, court ordered therapy where people go in and they do five sessions and they're done. And I don't really think that achieves much, but if people can choose to do it and it could be like, a healing process, you know, like think of divorce or custody as a healing process. That would be more ideal. <laughs> um, and I'm always going to refer people to do therapy, um, especially if they're getting divorced. But my particular interest is in conflict coaching because mm-hmm. that's not something that, um, it's not something that's being used widely in family court at all. There's some studies of doing it, say like in businesses or organizations or just personally, but I would like to bring it into the divorce process so that people can learn to manage their expectations and their conflict styles um, and even prevent and reduce conflict by themselves because we can't control other people, but we can't control ourselves. So if we can learn to manage things from our own side, it could potentially reduce the ongoing conflict with the other party, even if the other party refuses to, to do it. <laughs> so right. that's, 
hopefully the goal of um, my dissertation research is going to show that this is a good alternative for preventing ongoing conflict and we could integrate it into the court processes. So any, um, any like interesting um, other interesting uh, research you've come across through your, um, your studies right currently? Um, Well, so far in my, literature review that I looked into, there's a lot on adverse childhood experiences. Did you want me to explain that or? Sure. sure. Um, well, the original study was looking at um, people in an obesity clinic who couldn't seem to lose weight or keep the weight off. And the doctor at the time um, sent out a survey with Kaiser Permanente and surveyed over 17,000 people, I think, um, and found patterns that what happened to them in their childhoods affected their physical and mental health, like lifelong, even as adults. And the things that... um, the adverse childhood experiences, the things that were showing up repeatedly were things like divorce and parents with substance abuse problems, um, child abuse, neglect, um, witnesses to violence and incarceration. Um, those are just a few of the things, but the more experiences someone has as a child increases the likelihood that they'll have certain um, physical and mental issues growing up and as an adult. And these are preventable. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, one, of, a- one of the, 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 the key points that they talk about too, with it is that the, the idea that it's a dose dependent relationship that the right. more, the right. more the uh, the adversity goes up, the more the 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 higher likelihood of the negative uh, life outcomes or health outcomes go up. Right. So this is particularly like why I'm focused on family court is because not a lot of research has centered around adverse childhood experiences in court, but family court is a place where we could be addressing family violence, domestic violence divorce <laughs> to reduce the likelihood that it will impact the kids in these custody cases. So um, there is a lot of research on ACEs in terms of, you know, medical and social work and, and education, but not a lot when it comes to family court. Um, and there's a lot of research on online dispute resolution and court alternatives, but not when it comes to family court. <laughs> so, um, which is odd of, because I would think that would, right. be, I mean, that's obviously one of the most, um, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> things you need a lot of dispute resolution with the family issues as opposed to right. other, uh, conflicts. Yeah, well, I do think it has been researched more, say, like in 
in the world of business because there's financial reasons to do that. Right, for sure. <laughs> but people aren't making the connection between the financial, you know, it's expensive. Adverse child expense, it, the ACEs are expensive and it costs our, our country in America, like billions of dollars a year in health related expenses that we could be putting towards prevention and reducing those health costs, you know, over many generations, but that's, that's a goal. So I think getting people to understand, like we need to be focusing on family court and, and connecting all of these dots. Like how can we use systems that are successful and other fields of study and applying it to say family court or, mediation because it will likely be successful there as well. Um, I remember we went to, I, I last saw you at that, uh, the legal uh, ACEs uh, trauma mm-hmm. and legal um, conference. And I think this year that they weren't able to, they, they I think they did it virtually. Did you, uh, did you see that? Or, or? No, I didn't get to um, attend at the time. I didn't, I didn't either, but uh, have you, have you, since we uh, last, um, uh, bumped into each other. Have you been to any other uh, interesting trainings around this stuff? Um, I'm actually, I'm actually doing a global hope conference next week, which is May. Um, I'm not looking at my calendar. (laughs) It's going to be the week of May 18th, 2020. Um, And that's going to focus on, a lot of trauma related stuff. Um, I was supposed to be at a conference in February and that one was canceled January. I was at a restorative justice conference, which was really interesting focusing on. um, Where was that? It was in Fort Lauderdale and it was put on by the Florida restorative justice association. Oh, cool. Um, so that one, like I did the education track because I have like one foot in education and one foot in family court. Um, but that one was really interesting and I really appreciated getting to talk to, um, Gretchen Casey and, um, Dan and these people at the river Phoenix, Center for Peace Building in Gainesville. Um, and especially in Fort Lauderdale, there's a lot of, say, police that are involved in community building. Um, so it's exciting to be a part of that as it grows in the state of Florida. Yeah, there was a um, it was a cool uh, trauma conference that I was thinking about going to Orlando, but that I think they moved it online and uh, I wasn't as compelled to go to it after it wasn't, uh, you know, be able to go in person. But, um, um, yeah. Um, and what, uh, what was the focus of the restorative justice, um, conference? Oh, they had different tracks for, you know, like I was focused on education and getting restorative justice in schools. And I presented on using circles, um, 
in alternative education settings. Oh, cool. Um, as a means to like really relationship build with students who need <laughs> secure relationships. And it, it really reduces problematic classroom behavior and it helps them to be more grounded and, you know, able to focus and concentrate. Um, and how, how long have you been um, uh, using the circles for? Um, well, I used them for the past year or two um, while I was an adjunct, um, but I'm not presently working as an adjunct because of COVID. So um, still in contact with my kids, though. <laughs> how did you still- get into the uh, that, that practice? Um, I was reading about it and like a core of my educational philosophy is relationship building, which I had always done, um, in all of the different classrooms that I worked in. But once I found out about, um, circles, I just started doing it without any formal training. Um, but I have since gotten formal training from, the center for peace building. So, and I took some classes at Nova on peace education where we discussed, you know, restorative justice practices, like on a school-wide basis. So, and I've done research (laughs) on it as well. So I think that it's definitely something that should be, um, embraced by school districts, not as a response to discipline, but as a preventative measure, you know, as like a community building um, practice. And how do you, uh, how do you set up the, the, the circle practice? Um, well, like in my classroom, we would do it almost on a daily basis, you know, just like when all the students came in, we would sit down, we would have a circle. It, it wasn't very formal we would usually play cards (laughs) while we were doing it. Um, And we would just talk about our goals for the day. It was a chance for the students to get things off their chest, you know, so that they could kind of brain dump um, if they got in a fight with their girlfriend or parent or whatever it was like, it gave them a chance to, transition from whatever was going on outside the classroom to being present in the classroom. And we goal set together so that they knew exactly what the expectations were for that class or that day. Um, And then we checked in with each other and held one another accountable. So it really gave them the power and the practice to be able to do these things on their own. Um, And I found that the more we did this on a daily, you know, like 15, 20 minutes out of the day, really, really set the tone for them being able to work and succeed. So I think it's invaluable. (laughs) Where, um, where were you adjuncting at? Um, Indian River State College. I was a GED teacher there and... I was working with a specific group of students that were in a youth build program, which is a nationwide program and they get um, industry certifications and 
construction. So once they graduate with their high school diploma, then they can get straight into a job working, you know, in construction because they have like the required certifications like OSHA and um, all the safety things that they've learned while doing this program. So it was a really great opportunity for, for them. And what were some of the, um, what were some of the success stories that you've um, witnessed there? Um, well, we were a really tight knit group and I had several kids that were foster kids um, and they, you know, had been in and out of different placements and were able to be put in the final placement. And these are, you know, teenagers that are driving and they've been bounced to different, you know, group homes and stuff their entire lives. So, um, being able to connect with, with this one student in particular and, and help him to feel like I'm not going anywhere, (laughs) you know, um, it took him a while. Like it took him a few months to feel like, okay, he's finally not going anywhere. And then once he felt that he got to work, he passed his GED quickly and he's working, um, Right now, he's currently working building porches, I think, Um, Uh you know, putting his skills and certifications to work. And I have another student, and she was a single mom, and um, I was able to connect her with a bunch of local agency, local agencies to help her with, you know, childcare and housing and, um, other therapeutic resources. Um, and she's been working on, um, at an auto store cause she loves working at cars and she's trying to get in. Like I, you know, I'm in touch with them still. I still write them let- letters of recommendation for job placements. And, um, the college is still kind of shut down as far as the vocational side goes. So they're not, actively pursuing like enrolling right now. But, um, I just had one of them text me yesterday, ask me questions. So I think like the relationships are foundational and it's exciting to see them continuing to like try to further their education and career prospects, especially right now, since everything is still pretty much shut down So, um, that's exciting. And I have like a lot of them were, um, juvenile, like on probation (laughs) and being able to help them have alternatives to whatever they were doing that got them on probation was, um, really rewarding to see, you know, them transition from, a problematic lifestyle to one that was more productive. Um, what about a different topic? Is uh, the, the the beaches open in Stewart now? It is. 
It is, but it's been very busy, so I'm not quite going yet. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's been busy. What yeah. about, um, have you done any surfing lately? No, I um, I just got a, a newer-to-me vehicle, so I am awaiting car racks to go <laughs> on uh-huh. top of it so that I can carry my water gear. But I'm excited because it should come next week, and... I will be able to to go to the beach and um, go kayaking. I'm really excited to go kayaking. But I've been hiking a lot because I know places I can go where it's safe to hike and not really be in crowds of people. <laughs> where do you go hiking? Um, well, I go to a lot of state parks. The closest one to me is the Savannahs State Park and – also Jonathan Dickinson, but I've been going to um, a place out west of town called Alapata, which is like a water management district area. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a lot of cows, but it's beautiful. Like it's a beautiful place to watch the sunset. So <laughs> I like it. Yeah, you know, there's an alapata that's in Miami, but I don't know if that's what you're talking it's about. It's related. It's all kind uh, of like this marshy name. grassland. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Miami one, there's no real, it's just all, uh, there's no real much grass. It's more of like, uh, uh, it's a little bit west of Wynwood. It's becoming like the new, um, have you been over to Wynwood? Yes. So basically alapata is like, it's like because Wynwood's become so gentrified, a lot of the artists are, are moving to Alapata. It's like the next kind of um, uh, art art um, uh, art uh, district in a way. But, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. But uh, all right. Well, well, thanks for talking to me today, uh, today Darby. Any uh, any other? Well, what are you looking forward to with your uh, with your work in this area? Any exciting? Um, ideas projects um well i'm really excited to get a conflict coaching program up and running um and i am a certified mediator so what i'm hoping to do is if um offer online mediation as an alternative to -to face-to-face mediation for anybody in a high conflict case in the state of Florida. And I would include parenting classes and conflict, my conflict coaching program as part of that. So um, even if it's a high conflict case, people could walk away with value, you know, like they may not have a successful mediation, but they can walk away with new parenting skills with, you know, ways to manage conflict and trauma that they wouldn't get, through any other mediation. (laughs) Um, So that's um, something that I am building and I will have, you know, the research within the next year or two, once my dissertation is over to, to really back it up and hopefully use it as a model for other mediation practices and court um, practices. So that, and I'm, always looking for opportunities to provide trainings to court professionals about being trauma informed um, because that's 
I think really important. There's things we can do just to modify what we're currently doing that can make it easier for people that have experienced trauma or um, high conflict to help them be more present in their bodies and able to participate and have agency instead of being in fight, flight, fight, flight or freeze mode. And um, I really want to advocate for people to have power and agency instead of just being told what to do by the court system. So those are things. Now now is a great time with all the online stuff because uh, I think people are much more uh, receptive to, I mean, they don't really have a choice uh, in the, in this COVID-19 new normal uh, that the, uh, the online stuff is, uh, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's now's the time to do the online um, conflict uh, mediation work. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Darby, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Try to stay dry. All right.